are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Peace be with you, church. Also with you. We'll do that one more time. Peace be with you, church. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you. I'm Justin Carl, and I want to thank Emmanuel Church. Y'all have long been a friend to me personally and to our church at Citizens Church. Even when I was first considering planting Citizens about four years ago, um, Andy and the team here were friends to me and helped me understand our city more, learn, and have always befriended me. So I thank you, and it's my pleasure to be with you. And over at Citizens, we're doing a series called Advent Stories, where we're letting the stories from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, teach us about Jesus and teach us about the Advent. But here's the thing with Advent. Advent can feel a little bit like a hot dog. We're not totally sure what makes it up or where it came from. Uh, We're not totally sure how we're supposed to be formed or feel afterwards, but we enjoy it. We say yes to it over and over at ballparks across churches in America. So let's give a little definition of what Advent is. It looks like this. What is Advent? Advent is the Christian celebration of Jesus' first coming and the expectation of his second coming. See, the first and second can get confusing because we live in an already and a not yet. Joy is here, but our joy is not full. Hope is here, but our hope is not full. Peace has come through Christ, but our peace is not full. Likewise, love from God, we can feel and it's real and bank our whole life on, but it won't hold a candle to the love we experience face to face with God one day. So Advent is a season about tension. It's a season about longing. It's a season about having all of your emotions and laying them down before a mighty God who loves you, gives you peace, joy, and hope. And last week, we reflected on baby John the Baptist and his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, teaching us about joy. But today, we are going to look at Simeon and Anna and let them teach us about hope. Now, Mary has had baby Jesus, and it's been 33 days, so the family has journeyed from their hometown to Jerusalem. They're going up to the big city, and at 33 days, they're faithful Jews. They are a poor family, and they make a sacrifice at the temple, just as Leviticus 12 tells them to. They don't have the money to drop a full goat on their firstborn as a sacrifice of atonement, so they do the two turtle doves or two common pigeons. And when they get to the temple, they're going to encounter two people, Simeon and Anna. And we don't really have an equivalent in our city or really in our culture of what the temple would be. So I want to show you this rendering of the temple complex. It would be huge. This huge outer gate, there would be the temple would be the highest structure in all of Jerusalem. And you can see there's like courts within courts. It's just this huge structure. To go up to it, you would know exactly where you were in all the Middle East, in all the known world. To go there, you would physically know we are here to worship and do something. You would not stumble in. It is not a back room. It is the thing. It's the biggest structure in Jerusalem, which is the biggest town all around. But here's the problem with that picture. That scene has never happened. 
the temple would be packed. Like Pepper Place Market on a sunny Saturday in the fall in Birmingham packed. Everyone is selling everything. Not just goats and pigeons, but lunch. Not just every clothing you can imagine. Every culture of the whole world is hawking their wares either on the outside or the inside, trying to get as close as they could without getting in trouble with the religious folks. They are packed there. The scene would be wild with live animals, children, babies, old people, beggars. Everyone would be at this temple. It would be the center of life for all of Judaism, but all of Jerusalem too. So you have to imagine, 33-year-old Jesus, he's not in a car seat, he's not in a stroller, he's probably swaddled up on Mama. Mama is probably 16, 17, wandering in his temple, just trying to be faithful, trying to be obedient with Joseph, making their way through the crowd, trying to buy their pigeons, and trying to get this day faithfully done with and pop back out of there with their baby. Well, then they meet Simeon. Look at verse 25 with me, church. Verse 25 looks like this. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Righteous means he does what is right before God and others. Devout means he takes the Scriptures and prayer to God seriously. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple that day. So Simeon is this special man. We don't know anything else really about him other than the Lord had promised this heart-aching, heartbroken man a promise. His heart from reading the Scriptures had been broken saying, when or when, Lord, will You come? When or when will Your consolation come? And consolation is a fancy word for the comfort. When will the comfort of God come to Israel? Come to God's people? And apparently God made him a promise by the Spirit that you will see this comfort come before you depart from the earth. And we don't know exactly why God tied it to His death. But we can probably assume Simeon was advanced in age or Simeon was sick in some way that there could be a timer between the promise and his life. And this consolation that was described, it's mainly described by the prophet Isaiah. It's a full 600 years before the scene in the temple. And we, that one day a Savior would come and comfort God's people. And it's all over the back half of Isaiah. I want to give you an example right here. Isaiah 51 is a great example. It says, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. That this comforter wouldn't just come and say, hey man, I know things have been tough, but this would be the Savior who flips the script on the effects of sin. That He undoes what has been done by man and puts things back and puts things right so that a desert would become a garden. So a wilderness could be a new place, a beautiful place. That waste places wouldn't be the story of one's life anymore. But instead, the comforter, Jesus would come and joy and gladness would be found in Jerusalem, her thanksgiving in the voice of song. It's saying when God comforts His people, you will know it because people are going to break out like a Broadway show and start singing because the hope of their hearts actually came. 
the thing they wished for all their life, the thing they prayed for, the thing they cried in their bed, suddenly showed up and had breath. And all these descriptions all over Isaiah point to this Lord's Christ who would console us and comfort us. And Jesus will take this up in Luke 4 as a full-grown man. His first time announcing Himself, He'll stand in a synagogue. He'll pick up the scroll of Isaiah. They had scrolls, not books. And He'd pull it out. And He'll pull up Isaiah 61, which is another one of these beautiful consolation passages, saying, I am that comfort. But today in the temple, Jesus is not a full-grown man. He is still a 33-day-old baby. And here's why Israel needs some comfort. It's been 400 years since the last prophet walked the earth and wrote Scripture. It's been 600 years since they had a proper king among the nation of Israel before they're even exiled. And they've been waiting all the way since the Garden of Eden, all since Abraham's promises for a Savior who would actually take the place of where that ram was slaughtered and be slaughtered for God's people to take away our sin. So when God's final and true prophet, when God's final and true priest savior, when God's final and true king walks into the temple, Simeon immediately knows, and this is what he does. Verse 27, we don't know what Simeon was doing, but he felt the spirit on him to go to the temple. Maybe he was resting, maybe he was eating, maybe he's working, but he obeys and goes to the temple and this happens. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, this older man with his wrinkled arms picks up baby Jesus, lifts him to the sky, and begins to sing. And the only reason Joseph doesn't start swinging or fighting this man for his baby is because stranger things have been happening. He had visits from shepherds he didn't know. Angels had appeared. We had a miracle pregnancy. This was like the lowest on the miraculous end for this man who's become a new stepdad in the past month. And what Simeon says is absolutely intoxicating. It's like a song, verse 28. It says, he took him up in his arms and he just blessed God. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. I'm ready to die because you're true to your word, God. For my eyes have seen your salvation. that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon rightly sees it's not just going to be for the Jewish followers of God, but all peoples will be blessed through this baby for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. See, Simeon got a unique promise to him, not just to encourage his heart, but that when God fulfilled it, he would be the man who announces this is it in the center of the temple, in the center of Jewish life, in the heart of the city to say, look, everyone, this is the announcement. And our culture overlooks the aged. And instead, Jesus uses this older man, possibly sick man, to hold up a healthy baby and say, this is what everyone has been waiting for for 10,000 years. The hope of your hearts is being fulfilled today. 
Jesus' advent, His first coming, is a promised hope delivered to Simeon and it's promised hope delivered to you, church. It is a hope impartial in the second coming. The second advent means that hope is coming in full one day. And you can imagine the sigh of relief from the parents. They went from hoping this man isn't going to harm their baby to being probably blown away as they learn Simeon's been praying his whole life for their baby. Probably long before Joseph and Mary were even born, Simeon's been on his knees hoping that his heartache for Israel would be healed. See, Joseph and Mary are also sighing that they're not crazy. That God is working out a master plan around baby Jesus, and it's not just them. They're being swept up in the story of God, and their role is just to obey God's Scripture like any other parent. Go and make the sacrifices. And church, I think that's a word for us, that your role, my role, our role in the story is to obey the Scriptures. Our culture can kind of wind us up, especially a church with a lot of people in the first half of their life, Lord willing, a lot of winding up about calling, a lot of just self-focus and even self-obsession, trying to figure out what I'm to do with my life. But if you take the example from Simeon and Joseph and Mary and even Anna coming next, if you want to be in the center of God's will for your life, obsess on the Scriptures. Learn them, listen to them, submit to them, obey them. And look at them. They're in the very center of the global world calling by simple prayer and obedience in their life. God wants to use your obedience to reveal all the things that you're supposed to do in this life. And how wonderful it is. I know that might be tough words to hear, but I think it's necessary for us. Could we be a people comfortable with obeying and praying to a trustworthy, promise-keeping God instead of obsessing on the future? Could we be a people that loves to see God fulfill what He says and have less pressure on us to figure everything out from a relatively early age? See, Simeon's calling, his life ambition, his heartache for the consolation of Israel is all fulfilled by simple prayer and obedience. Look what happens next in verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mo- Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon declares, they marvel, then Simeon drops a small but poignant prophecy that will matter. Jesus, the hope of Israel, will be shaking things up. As an adult, he's going to shake up the order of what people think of of who's religious and who loves God and who doesn't. He will be opposed over celebrated in his life for the most part. And hearts that are right with God and who repented his coming will greet Christ and rise. But others will hate the light and they will fall and reject Jesus no matter how religious they seem. John 3, uh, 19 speaks to this. That this is the judgment. The light Jesus has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. 
And Simeon's prophecy includes this cryptic line that goes from talking about many people to the singular. He says, we'll pierce your heart also, meaning Mary's heart. And we'll come back to that line in a moment. But now it's Anna's turn. Another person, a frequent person in the temple who's going to tell the world about the hope of Jesus. Look at verse 36 with me. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This Anna was probably married in her late teens. Let's call it 17. She lived with her husband for seven years. That makes Anna 24. She has now been a widow for six decades. That is a seriously long time to be departed from this husband that at 17 she thought her whole life would be ahead of her in that way. So now being 84, and that would be so uncommon in their culture, young widows almost always remarried in Jewish culture, especially in the first century. There's a theme here that God pays attention both to the common stories and the uncommon stories. And people who may be in the outside of a culture, God actually says they're right here next to me. In marriage, a man and a woman give their bodies to each other, being one flesh, as Genesis 2 describes. But Luke tells us, instead of Anna giving herself to another marriage, she's physically given her body over to the Lord. It's a marriage that she has been in the same temple complex. I don't know if she has a place to sleep on the outside of the gate. I don't know where she's at. But she spent 60 years giving her body over to the physical act of fasting and prayer and worship. It's a little example of what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7. This choice celibacy of singleness. And she has lived it out with great faith. And it's a lesson to us. Because we live in a culture that can't decide if our body is everything or our body is nothing. Is our body everything so that we should worship our body and worship maybe other people's bodies and find all of our worth there? Or is our body just nothing? Maybe even it's a liability, something to be fixed. Nothing, that our relationships don't really matter. Nothing, that why bother with physical presence in a technological world? We see in Anna our body matters, and what we choose to do with it matters. The Scriptures teach us that our bodies are a gift from God to be used and enjoyed in God's ways. And there's no greater example of the importance of what we do with our body than the incarnated Jesus, the enfleshed Jesus. Without the body of Jesus, there's no salvation, church. There's no perfect obedience for us. There's no dying on the cross. There's no rising from the dead. We don't have a spirituality that we divorce from the physical. Instead, it is embodied faith modeled by Jesus. And we see with Anna, you can't obey Jesus without a body. 
Anna has put her faith to work. True faith, as the book of James would tell us. And what Anna does with that body is fills her lungs with the oxygen of this world to say that the hope of the world has arrived. He is here. Anna sees baby Jesus, hears from Simeon, knows it in her bones that the Messiah, even if a baby now, He is here. The redemption has drawn near. Hope has arrived, even if a baby for now. When you have hope, you cannot help but tell others. The best evangelists I know, the people who share their faith all the time, have a deep hope that Jesus is God and that everyone can change. Not by their own power, but that God is good, active, and willing to work in their lives. When you feel, "Ah, I don't share my faith, that's just not something I do, I want you to ask, has your heart grown cold in hope? Because a hot heart and hope shares their faith easily. Because they believe that the hope means the future can be different and it makes us courageous in the now. Hope believes that the future can be different and it makes us absolutely courageous in the now. A soldier doesn't go to battle unless they believe they can win. They lay down their arms and give up when they feel like it's hopeless. And we are the people, no matter the odds, that have a God who will win. So we can swell up in our hope and share love fearlessly. Share the hope and good news of Jesus fearlessly. And we see this Advent pattern for hope in Simeon and Anna that's also meant for us. That they have these heartaches. For Simeon, it's drawing to the end of his life, but it's also that he has become heartbroken reading books like Isaiah that Israel's consolation's not here. He chooses the hope in God and finds healing. Similarly, Anna's been alone for six decades in a culture where being single was uh, truly, truly uh, a 1% thing or less. And she's dealt with this heartache in her own body starting to deteriorate at 84. And she put her hope in the Lord and found healing. They both looked at God in hope and God brought healing in His time. Yet too often, we refuse to hope, church. We refuse hope as an unwelcome guest. That that's not a natural pattern for us. There's a popular television show called Ted Lasso. And on an episode of it, he's talking about the English football or soccer phrase that says, it's the hope that kills you. And they're reflecting on an upcoming soccer match and their hopes, and they tell each other, it's the hope that kills you. It's better not to hope. It's better not to get your expectations raised in any way. It's better... It'll hurt more if you're disappointed, if you hope too much. And this idea doesn't come from wise living. This idea of choosing not to hope doesn't come from Jesus. This idea actually comes from the atheist philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said this, Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of men. And I believe most of us have learned not to hope in our heartaches. That most of us have learned not to hope in our heartaches as Jesus demonstrates or these faithful men and women do or the Psalms detail. 
but instead learn to bury our heartaches, to put on a tough face, to find answers in the bottle, to find answers in looking at things we shouldn't, to find answers in relationships, maybe on what seems positive to busy ourselves with religious activity, to purposely overpack our schedules so we don't have to overthink anything in our life, to become a workaholic, which sounds great, I'm providing for my family, but keeps us from attending to the things that lie on our chest at night. Most of us don't have to think long, hard, or far to get to the heartaches, our last thoughts before we sleep. And I think we do this because we believe to dare to hope might just kill us. To dare to hope might just prolong the pain. And I got new news for you, church. We're not fools to hope if our hope is in Christ. We will have heartaches. Most of them could rattle them off right now. And Simon's cryptic line hints to the reason we can hope in God, trust in God with our heartaches. Look back with me at 35. He drops this and it's for Mary and to us. In this beautiful talk about the work that Jesus will do, it says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Jesus is a baby this day, but Jesus' path as the Lord's Christ will end in His murder. There is no other trajectory. Mary who rejoices this day will have to see that day too. The day it will feel like a sword piercing straight through this mother's heart. Jesus in 33 years will be back in Jerusalem. Not to be announced and celebrated, but denounced and condemned. Jesus will die on a cross not for His crimes. He has none. But Jesus will die for our sins because our sins are so terrible and our God is so good that God had to send His own Son to die in our place. To die for us, but also die because of us. To bring us home to God. Mary will have that sword pierce her soul to watch her little boy, even though grown as a man, always her little boy, die on a cross. And Romans 8.32 pulls this together for us. He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Church, because of Jesus, it is safe to hope. God is not holding out on you one ounce in this life. And whether it's in this life or the life to come, healing will come for every single heartache in your life. God is not inattentive. God is not ignoring you. As Psalms say, He collects our tears in a bottle. And in Revelation 21.4, it says He'll wipe the tears from our eye. When Jesus' perusia, the second coming, the second advent comes, the judgment will come. The resurrection will be here. The end of the world will start and the beginnings of a new world. And part of that promise is that God will personally attend to every heartache in your life. Anna and Simeon got a glimpse of it. But we will all drink it down full. That Jesus rose for us. And we have reasons to hope. Paul says in Corinthians 15, he says, if the resurrection is not true, we are most of all to be pitied. But the resurrection is. 
So we have a reason for hope in our life. Christmas is the story of a baby destined to die. It is a story and a season for joy and tears. If all you got is tears this year, that's okay and look to Jesus for joy. If all you got is joy this year, then look around and grab somebody because tears are already flowing. No one can sit around a table and not think about the generations or the current people lost in their life. No one can sit around a table and think everything just went well for the past two or three years. It is a season to mingle your joy and tears with Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph and our Jesus. It means he was a real man for us with real tears for us. See, this has been the pattern always. Our salvation hangs on the Savior's sacrifice. They didn't have money for a lamb, so they did two pigeons. The whole Testament nails home this idea. It takes blood to satisfy, to build the atonement for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus will be that final lamb. A lamb for us. And the world will be made over. Everything sad, evil, and wrong, and unjust will become untrue. And that's why the world fears hope, because the world has no hope. They give themselves over to sentimentality, to dreadful nihilism or fairy tales, when our evangelism can replace all that with real, solid hope and a God who runs it all but became a baby for us. Jesus means our hope is not in vain, and we are not fools to hope again, church. Our heartaches have a place in hope. In God, it is Jesus who makes our hope real. Church, look with me at Romans 5. I want to kind of leave us with this. Let it just wash over you. It's a beautiful passage about hope works in the faith of the church. We, not just I, but we, us together, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that the world is going somewhere and it's going towards His glory. Everyone who follows Jesus will see the glory of God and will taste it. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, our heartaches, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I remember reading this about 12 years ago. I had boastfully promised coming out of college that I would raise all my support to go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ in like four months. No problem. Except there was a problem. I was about at 64% of all my support raised. I was crying on a driveway thinking how I had told all these people in my pride and my boastfulness of I would do this thing. And eventually, first repented of my pride. And second, I was like, Lord, I'm so sorry for bringing you shame that I said you were going to do this thing in my pride and selfishness. It hasn't been done. What will people say of my God among my many unbelieving friends and family? And the Lord secured me and grabbed me and says, it's okay to hope. Please don't boast things that aren't true. Please don't boast things that you should be humble with. But it's okay to hope in me that I will do those things in your life on my time. But it is not shameful to hope in a God who is good and glorious. 
Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you, church. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because through Christ's death, God has poured His love into us by the Holy Spirit. If you follow Jesus, that's true of you, church. He died for you. You have a reason to hope in your heartache because healing is on the way. The perusia, the second coming of Christ is true because the first coming has already happened. It's our guarantee that there is a future and a hope for all of us. If we fail to connect Christmas and the cross, we will always have an infantile Christianity. But we can have hope because of Jesus. Our heartaches have a place and healing is on the way. Let me pray for us, church, and then you'll take communion. Lord, Father God, we love you. We trust you. May your face shine upon us as we go out and we come in, as we sit, as we rise, as we teach our children these things and talk to our neighbor along the way. May we speak of the good news and the glory of the gospel, that we have a hope that's not nihilistic, it's not sentimental, it's not a fairy tale, but it's real, as real as the own blood in our veins. So it was spilt, so that body rose, that baby became a man and died for us. Lord, make our hope as real as anything in our life. Help us learn to hope again in our heartaches. Lord, we love you. Emmanuel Church loves you. Christ, we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham. 